turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Job chapter 1. And as you turn there this morning, I would first like to thank Brian and the session for giving me this privilege and this opportunity to deliver God's Word to you this evening or this morning. It is, it is not a small thing to do this, and I am truly thankful for the opportunity. As many of you may know, I'm teaching through the book of Job on Sunday evenings, and when Brian asked me a few weeks ago if I'd be willing to preach, I figured it would make the most sense for me to use some of the lessons that I've already created um, in order to, to craft this sermon. And so some of you may be a little bit familiar with this already as you've heard bits and pieces of it, but a little bit more about the reason why we're studying the book of Job on Sunday evening. About a year ago, I was introduced to a commentary by a man named William Henry Green, who was a professor at Princeton Seminary back when Princeton Seminary would have been a place worth going to. Um, and he wrote this most instructive commentary on the book of Job. And it's by far the best commentary that I've ever read, and not just simply the best commentary on the book of Job, but the best commentary that I have ever read. And it gave Job a, a life to me, a meaning to me. It is clear, it is applicable, it is convicting. And it just opened up this book in ways that I had not uh, realized before or seen before. And so I thought that maybe I would have the opportunity over the next, you know, however long I get to teach on Sunday evenings, to, to open this commentary in this book to, the, to those that attend and they can share in the treasure trove that I have discovered uh, in the book of Job. So we are going to read verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1, focused on the blessed servant of God. And Lord willing, I will do that under four heads. We will first talk about the character of the blessed servant of God. We will talk about the disciplines of the blessed servant of God. We will look at the privileges of the blessed servant of God. And we will consider the joy of the blessed servant of God. So character, disciplines, privileges, and joy. But before we read Job chapter 1, let us go to the God of this word and ask for his blessing upon this sermon. Our Father and our God, thank you for gathering us here this Sunday morning. We are thankful for the privilege to worship you. We are thankful for your word and for the power that it possesses. And we pray, O oh God that you will open our ears and our hearts as I preach this morning, that God, your word would reveal new and wonderful things about you to us this morning. I pray, O oh God, that I would decrease and that you would increase and that the words of my mouth and the meditation of, of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. For it is in Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's read Job chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. 
For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, Job did continually. This is the word of God. The grass withers and the flower fades. As we consider briefly and sketch out the character of the servant of God, the Holy Spirit very helpfully has described it very clearly for us in, cha- in verse 1, chapter 1 of this uh, first chapter of Job. He says that Job is blameless and upright, one who fears God, and one who shuns evil. He will repeat that description for us later on in chapter 1, and he will do it again in chapter 2. And pr- Dr. Green in his commentary says this forms the square of the Christian man, of the character of the Christian man. So let's consider what it means to be blameless first and foremost. By blameless, it certainly does not mean that Job is sinless. We know that Job sins. He's a human being. All humans have sinned, and Job confesses his sin later on in the book. So blameless in this case does not mean sinless, but it means complete. It means that every single aspect of his life has been touched by the sanctifying work of God as he has worked in Job. Job is not a man that goes to church on Sunday and claims to be one thing and then lives the rest of his week as if he's a heathen. He's not one that claims to be good with his time and his energy, but he's selfish and he's unmerciful and he's unloving. He's not like the Pharisees who diligently tithed mint and cumin and anise, but then neglected the weightier things of the law. Job, every aspect of Job's life has been permeated by the work of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 uses a similar word when it says all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete or blameless is the word there, equipped for every good work. Job's Total uprightness extends to every aspect of his life. He's also described as upright. He's pure, he's holy, and he's righteous in heart, speech, and behavior. The word upright almost defines itself, right? We have this image of Job, if you will, standing with his feet firmly planted on the ground, firmly planted in the word of God. He does not lean to the right or to the left. He does not swerve to the right or to the left but he's diligent in his obedience of God. He's upright in all that he does. And why does he do it? He's clearly wealthy. He clearly has the favor favor and approbation of man, but that's not why he does it. The Holy Spirit tells us that he does it because he fears God. His desire is to glorify and honor his God in heaven. He takes the tangential benefits that come along with that obedience to God, but he does it because God is ever before his eyes. He desires to honor him in all that he does. Proverbs 9.10 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And Job demonstrates his knowledge in his fearing of God. And then the final part of the the perfect square of the man of God or the blessed servant of God is that he shuns evil. Job is not foolish enough to think that he can honor God, be blameless, and be upright if he's running headlong into evil. He takes affirmative steps to avoid even the temptations to sin. He says in chapter 31, I've made a covenant with my eyes that I might not look upon another woman. 
Job is careful to guard himself. Proverbs 16, 17 tells us, the highway of the upright is to depart from evil. You think of I-70 running through at least the backyard of Fort Riley and that straight and true road, people zooming either direction. That's the image that we are to have here, that the highway of the righteous doesn't run towards evil, it runs away from evil. Solomon instructed his son repeatedly in the book of Proverbs, don't even go down the street of the evil woman or you will fall into sin. Job knows his limitations, he knows his weakness and he shuns evil. Blameless, upright, fears God, shuns evil. In chapter 23 of this book, verses 11 and 12, Job describes himself as he's discoursing with his friends, and he says this about himself. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Brothers and sisters, if we desire to be a blessed servant of God, we must desire God's word and his law more than our necessary food. We must desire in all ways to serve him wholeheartedly, as Job has done. But we look next at the disciplines of the servant of God. Now, the book of Job does not go much into the history of Job. We can presume he's an older man. He has 10 children. He's amassed a great amount of wealth. What we do know for sure is that Job didn't just wake up one morning, this very blameless, upright, and holy man without any effort. This was a man, we have reason to believe, zealously pursued God in all that he did. The command to us is that we zealously pursue God. So let's look at the disciplines of those servants. Well, first, the servant of God must be attuned to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. We know that all of us, when we are saved, as sa are saved as newborn babes. Some of us are literally young children when we are saved. Others are older. But we all enter the Christian life at the same stage. And throughout our Christian walk, God shapes us. He molds us. He causes us to be more like himself. Sanctification, our catechism says, is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, and enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. That's what God promises to do for his children. That's what the Holy Spirit does in us by an act of God's free grace. And we are commanded to be active in that pursuit of sanctification. Now, not because we have to do it and God is some helpless God that can only get us to a certain point and then we got to throw our effort behind it and push it across the finish line. That's not why. But it's because God has ordained that the, may, the way that we will be sanctified by the work of his spirit is for us to diligently and actively pursue it. Paul knows that we don't save ourselves, but in Philippians he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Peter knows the decree of election took place from before the foundation of the world. But in 2 Peter, he tells us to be diligent to make our calling and election sure. We are commanded to use the word, to use prayer, to use the means of grace in order to grow and be diligent in our walk with the Lord. And you'll notice that in your life sometimes as the Spirit is working in you, right? You'll, you'll feel yourself wake up and say, ah, I need to wake up a few minutes early because I'm going to spend some time in the Word. That is God's grace 
unto you as he sanctifies you. You may have a sharp tongue and you know that certain comments or certain, uh, certain situations will set you off. And you walk in the house and something happens and you stop and you pause and you think for a second and you hold your tongue. That is God's grace to you in sanctifying you. But unfortunately, we also blow through those things all the time, right? We hit snooze again on the alarm, we sleep through, and we don't get to our Bible reading that day. We do walk in, we say, if this happens, I'm not going to get upset. And sometimes before it even happens, we get upset, and we completely blow through that. That's still God's work of sanctification in us. As he convicts us of our sin, he draws us unto himself. He reminds us of our need for a Savior, and he forgives us as we repent of those sins. So we must be attuned to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we must highly prize the means of grace. Means of grace are the word, sacraments, and prayer. Said differently, it could be the word, the worship, and prayer. We know the value of the word of God. God has given us these 66 books in his word. And that is how he reveals himself to us is the complete rule of faith and life for us. Everything we need to know about God, everything that we need to know to serve God is found in this word. And the way that we get to know him is to study his word diligently. And so often we are cold and heartless when it comes to the word. And yet God has given us this. We converse with God through prayer. And many of us are quick to pray when things are going badly or when we think we have a a particular need that we want to lift up to him. But other times we can neglect that very important means of grace. As has been preached from here before, undoubtedly, Christ spent more time in prayer than we would ever have assumed that he would have. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is God. And yet he carved aside time every day to pray and to converse with his Father. He didn't even need to, and we, of course, need to, and must do so repeatedly. We must diligently do this, corporate worship, spending time as a gathered people of God to come together and worship him. God has placed a special primacy on his corporate worship, and the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments that goes along with that. God has made this valuable. Our catechism again says, the spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the word of God, an effective means of convincing and converting sinners, of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. This is important. Wednesday evening Bible studies are important. Saturday theology discussions are important. Gathering with brothers and sisters in Christ to fellowship, to pray, to read through a book together, all immensely important and vital. And a wonderful blessing of being part of the family of God. But this here, Sunday mornings for corporate worship must be our focus. And in a world where increasingly doing this kind of thing seems more and more odd, more and more unnecessary, I could just stream something, I could listen to a podcast, I could watch something on TV. Brothers and sisters, we cannot give this up. For ever since God has communicated to his people, he's gathered them in person to preach to them. 
and providential hindrances abound. I've got that. There are plenty of good reasons to turn on the television and watch somebody preach. But we must be here. We must be active. We must be present for the worship of God. And this day in particular, the Lord's day, is an important means of grace. God has given us a day, one whole day out of seven, to rest from our worldly cares and concerns and to delight in him in this beautiful picture of heaven that we have as we gather together as the people of God to praise him and honor him and glorify him. Turn to Isaiah 58, verses 13 and 14, if you will. In that, God, through the prophet Isaiah, is condemning the children of Israel for their hardness of heart, for how often they turn away from him, for how often they stray from him and neglect his word. And Isaiah 58 says this, verse 13, if you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, and parenthetically, that is from how you're keeping the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own, own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. Then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. God says, keep my Lord's day, honor me. Now, oftentimes, the Lord's Day becomes this list of rules and restrictions. Can you eat out? Can you play sports? Can you study? Can you work? Can you watch the Super Bowl? It's all of these things. And those are not unimportant questions. The fourth commandment tells us to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Holy means set apart. It must be set apart in some way. We have to know how it is distinguished from the other days of the week. But notice God's focus is not, hey, let me list out a whole bunch of rules for you and see who can craft the longest list of rules. That was the Pharisees' problem. Pharisees' problem was not that they honored the Lord's Day. The Pharisees' problem is that they created their own rules to honor the Lord's Day. But the focus of Isaiah 58 is that God says, I will bless you if you delight in me. I will pour out my blessings upon you. And he says to the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It is a fact. Brothers and sisters, if you test God in this way, in the appropriate sense of testing him, if you test him in this way and keep the Lord's day honorable, I promise you that it will not be time wasted. There will be nobody in heaven that will say, my only regret is that I just spent too much time on the Lord's day honoring him. That will never be the case. Test the Lord in that, I promise you. He will fulfill his promises. The third aspect of the disciplines of the blessed servant of God is that you will walk in newness of life. You will practically live out your faith. We are not saved by our good works. We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. But we are saved unto good works. The Bible tells us repeatedly. We are to live as Christians. We are to live and walk in newness of life because God has called us from being dead and dying creatures into new life and a new relationship. The old man has passed away. The new man is here. And God says to love one another, to forgive one another, to encourage one another, to pray for one another, to be kind to one another, to be hospitable to one another. All the one another throughout scripture are commands to us to live out our faith. 
This afternoon, turn to Job chapter 29. And in that chapter, Job recounts for us what his life looked like. His life didn't just look like camels and sheep and donkeys and ten children. His life was spent living out his Christian faith, caring for others, being a a devout member of the community, being respected amongst those whom he lived. Why? Because he followed God zealously. He desired to be somebody whose testimony was apparent to the world. Paul in Philippians tells us that if we do that, we will shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Paul wrote that in Philippians. I think we could probably safely say that we still live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And we have the opportunity to shine like lights in our Christian testimony. And then finally, we must be zealous about mortifying sin in our lives. We will never do away with the remaining sin. That will not happen this side of glory. We will always struggle and battle against sin. But we should not allow, we must not allow sin to reign in our bodies. We have been freed from the bondage of sin. Sin separates, sin destroys, sin kills. Sin, most importantly, alienates us from God. And as we seek to dwell in this world as blessed servants, seek to cultivate a relationship with him, we cannot cling to sin that we are not willing to confess. And it's hard. It's hard for all of us. We, we, try, to, we try to live in a way that maybe we don't have really open and notorious sins, but every single one of us has what the Puritans used to call those bosom idols, those things we cling closely to. You're not taking my idol away from me. God will accept me like 99% good, but I'm, I'm reserving this one unto myself. God says, confess it. I will forgive it, and I will free you from it. My parents served as missionaries in Africa for 10 years when I was in college um, into law school and married life. My dad was a pastor when I was growing up. And you gone to East Africa, they hate snakes, right? It seems to be a worldwide sentiment. They dislike snakes in Uganda as much as we dislike them anywhere else. But in Uganda, due to the nature of it being a third world country, snakes kill people pretty frequently. So anytime there was a snake that would be found in a village, the men of the village would go out there with shovels and with sticks and they'd beat it to death and then they'd take a machete and they'd chop the head off and they'd chop it up into little pieces and they'd throw it in a fire and they would burn it. And my dad joked with them one time and said, I, I, I'm pretty sure that thing was dead when you beat it with a shovel. And they said, you can never be too careful. Those things are dangerous. You've got to make sure it's dead. You can't take any chances with snakes brothers and sisters the sin in our life is deadly we must attack it we must kill it we must put it to death as we're commanded to do in scripture now what are the privileges of the blessed servant of God Job we read is rich he's blessed with 10 children those of you who know the story of of Job know that you know, as a result of an interchange between God and Satan, God allows Satan to take all of that stuff away from him. But at least initially, he's rich, he's famous, he's powerful, he's the greatest man in all of the East. Is that why we serve God? Is that the privilege of the blessed servant of God? Well, let me read briefly from Dr. Green's commentary 
and the blessed servant. If any man on earth should be a happy man, it is he who is truly religious. The good man is most truly blessed. Religion does not foster gloom. There is no step that any person can take more fraught with blessing to himself in this world as well as in the next than that in which he makes choice of God as his portion and his friend and pledges himself to be his ever faithful servant. Do we believe that there is nothing more important than the service of God? Psalm 34 says, oh, taste and see the Lord is good. Do we believe that? What are the privileges that go along with serving God? There are, of course, many will focus on five as they are laid out for us again in the shorter catechism. Question 36 asks, what are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification, right? That's 17th century speak for what are the privileges that come from being a Christian? And it answers the question this way. The blessings which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace, and perseverance therein to the end. Let's discuss each one of these briefly. Assurance of God's love. We could preach an entire sermon, I wouldn't, I'd let Brian do it, on assurance as Christians because that is a very, very, very difficult topic. Some Christians legitimately struggle with their assurance, but God has called us to be sure and to be confident of our standing with him. God desires us to have that assurance. Paul says, I know whom I have believed. He says, I am confident of this very thing. Paul does not say, I'm certainly hopeful that this will come to pass. John in his epistles refers to the church as beloved. He knows and we are commanded, we are encouraged to have that assurance. God desires that we not always be smoking flax, but that at times, most times, that we should be bright burning flames, conscious of our sin, conscious of our shortcomings, but confident that God has done a good work in us and assured that we are his children. Secondly, peace of conscience. Brian preached a couple weeks ago about Christ's words to the disciples in the upper room, peace to you. We have peace with God our Father because of the work of Christ in saving us, in restoring us to a relationship with him. We're no longer at war with the king of the world. We're no longer at enmity with he who created us. But we've had that relationship restored. We are reconciled. Christ's blood assured the terms of peace for us. And we are to be confident of that. Confident that we have that peace. In Pilgrim's Progress, Christian is walking through the valley in the shadow of death. And he encounters Apollyon, which is this personification of Satan, this big, ugly, hideous dragon. And Satan says, come back to me, Christian. Come back to my side, to my team. And Christian says, I could never do that. I could never betray my Savior. And Apollyon says, you've already betrayed him. You fell into the slew of despond. You took counsel from worldly wise man. You're a sinner. And Christian says, you're right, I am. But I serve a gracious and merciful and forgiving God. And your wages, Apollyon, are death. But God's gift is eternal life. And though I fall and sin, I know that I am my Savior's. 
That's Christian's response. We know that we are his because the spirit of God gives us peace. Thirdly, joy in the Holy Ghost. Christian life is not just rules and it's not just regulations. Dr. Green talked about the most happy man should be he who serves God. Now, this is not like birthday party happy where we clap and we say, woohoo, everything is great, right? Sometimes it will be that. But that's not the happiness we're focused on here. It is a happiness that comes from knowing you are a child of God. Your eternal future is secure. And whatever the world throws at you, whatever trials and temptations and tribulations come, you are God's child first and foremost. And you can rejoice that you serve a God who does all things and who does all things well. We are commanded to be joyful. We are commanded. Read the Psalms. As you read the Psalms, number the times that it says rejoice, be glad. I was glad unto me. I delight. Seems to be the only thing David did was delight in the Lord. And he should. We all should. Because he is our God and we are his children. And covenant children, I will speak to you for a moment. Look up here as I address you. You have a tremendous privilege of being born into a household that loves God and that loves Christ our Savior. It's a blessing that for those who don't have that, they are tremendously jealous of you for having that. And I know I'm not a child any longer, but I am a covenant child still by God's grace. And there are times I know when the Christian faith does not seem all that joyful and it does not seem all that fun. Your mom and dad have rules. Your parents are probably more strict than your neighbors. You're probably not allowed to do certain things. Your dad's a weirdo that doesn't let you play sports on Sunday or doesn't let you watch TV on Sunday, right? You've got to read the Bible all the time. You sit here for an hour. You go on Wednesday evenings. There's all sorts of things that cause you to say, wouldn't life be better somewhere else? And it is not. I promise you it is not. God has tremendously blessed you by bringing you into a covenant household, by engaging himself to you in baptism until your profession of faith and saying, you are mine and I claim you. Rejoice in that family relationship because it is a tremendous blessing of God. Fourthly, increase of grace. As we talked about with sanctification, the Christian life is a, is a process of growing more and more Christ-like and less and less worldly. And God delights in pouring his grace out upon you. That's why they're called the means of grace, the word, sacraments, prayers. They're the means that God uses to fill us with grace. I um, worshiped at a church where the pastor used to say we're like leaky buckets. If you ever go to the beach and you pull that plastic bucket out of the shed that's sat there all winter and, and you fill it up and there's holes in it and sand's pouring and the handle breaks and there's water pours out of it, right? That's us as Christians. God fills us with his grace. He pours his grace into us and it leaks out of us all the time. And God is good to continue to fill us. But not only does he continually fill us, but he's also working to fix that bucket He's mending holes. He's fitting that handle back together. He's plugging the cracks that cause the grace to leak out. And he's making us bigger and bigger buckets so that as he pours his grace into us, we are able to hold it. We're able to retain it. We 
we progress in the faith. We no longer battle against the same sins that we used to battle. We find more delight in the word of God. We find more delight in times of prayer. We enjoy fellowshipping with the saints. We, we hate the world more and more. Brothers and sisters, that's God's pouring his grace into us. And finally, perseverance therein to the end. For all, this is the P of tulip, right? For all of the harshness that comes with the five points of Calvinism and tulip and all the criticism of this cold, heart, heartless, mean God that sends people to hell, we must remember that we can believe in persevering to the end for one reason, and it is because God does everything himself. Because if he left even one small part to us, we would fail miserably every single time. It is God who holds us. It is God who claims us. We are his sheep. He is the good shepherd. Nobody can snatch us out of his hand. There is no possible way for those who are truly saved, who are called, who are regenerated, who are drawn unto God, there's no possible way we will not be victorious. There's no way we will not win. God has assured it. I know whom I have believed. I referenced that earlier. And am persuaded that he, God, is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. He does it. He who began a, work in, a good work in you will complete it until the day of salvation. He will do that. We are his workmanship. And he, he brings us through to completion. And that's the privilege and the promise of the blessed servant of God. Well, as we move into this final point in the joy of the servant of God, I listen to a pastor sometimes who says, what does this mean for us on Monday? What does this mean for us on Tuesday? As we think about applying this word, as we think about going forward, we leave here, we're all fired up. What does it mean for us Monday mornings when our alarms go off at 5.30 in the morning? What does it mean for us when we have to tackle our days? Well, here's the joy of the servant of God. We didn't even read it this morning, but I'll give you a glimpse of it in chapter 1, verse 8 of Job. And Satan's gone to and fro around the world and confronts God. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him in all the earth. And then again in chapter 2, verse 3, Satan comes back to God and God says, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him in all the earth. We serve a God who is not distant. He is not cold. He is not arm's length, but he loves us and he favors us. God is, in all good ways, boasting about Job. Though God does the work in Job from start to finish, he goes to Satan and says, look at my servant Job. There is none like him in all the earth. God delights in us. He delights to pour his favor upon us. He delights to continue to love us, to make us glad, to bring us joy. He's a God who's so powerful and so caring and so capable that every one of his servants can be the apple of his eye. Have you considered my servant Job? Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Think of that, brothers and sisters. The God of the universe, the God who created all things by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good, 
rejoices over us with singing. He loves us. He cares for us. He desires. When Christ says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you in, that's not just written hyperbolically. Christ loves the sheep. He loves his people. And they delight, he delights. God himself delights in us. That is our joy. That is our hope. Matthew 25, we have the parable of the talents. And for the two servants who were faithful, God says, well done, how good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Come exist with me. Come dwell with me. Come enjoy my favor for eternity. My prayer for us this morning is that we will enjoy blessed service of God that we will find his favor and that we will delight in him. And he will say to each one of us, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, thank you again for this time, this brief time that we have had to explore this text. Oh God, we are so amazed at your goodness and your mercy to us. We are so amazed that you would condescend to save sinful humble creatures and then to equip us and to build us up and to get a, help us get to know you and to dwell in your favor and that you would actually rejoice in these humble vessels of clay oh god may that be our joy may that be our delight and may we be blessed by you this morning we pray all of this in christ's name amen